Episode 142, hooking back into the French return to Antarctica. The third voyage of the Commandant Charcot arrived at the Port Martin anchorage on the 6th of January 1951. Michel Barr, veteran of the French Navy and after the scuttling of the fleet at Toulon and the resulting collapse of the Vichy regime, veteran of the Free French Service, led the new wintering party and its 28 fresh dogs. This second Gallic wintering tranche comprised Dr. Jean Cedron as medico, Jacques Dubois as meteorologist, Jean Bokin as ionospheric physicist, Paul Peru as surveyor, Claude Tisseron and Ratto, I couldn't find a first initial for Ratto, as radio operators, Dover and Dubois, again no first initials, as engineers, and Tebeteur, no first initial and no role designation for Tebeteur. I can't find Bertrand in Bert's role for this wintering party either, but I'm sure a story will come to light as I work into literature about French activity during the IGY, as he turns up in stamps celebrating that period. Reverend Pierre Noel Mayud, a Jesuit cleric, served as geophysicist. I think George Schwartz stayed on for a second winter looking after the dogs, but again, Muscatchy resources leave uncertainty hanging over many facets of the narrative I've assembled for these episodes. The first major foray off station took place early in the autumn, using weasels decked over with plywood cabins. Travelling across the sea ice proved more treacherous than Barr expected. Meltwater running through the mid-layers of the sea ice flows in rivulets made the sea ice surface treacherously thin. The weasels broke through regularly, though the lower layers of solid ice prevented them reaching seawater. A dangerous prospect, as no one trusted the war-weary vehicle's factory-fresh claims to waterproofing and buoyancy. A blizzard pinned the party. Unable to risk letting the engine fluids cold soaking and turning sludgy, they ran the weasels up every three hours. One of the vehicles leaked exhaust fumes into the homemade cabin. Fortunately, Dr. Cedron noticed the symptoms and signs of carbon monoxide poisoning before anyone succumbed, but they daren't risk running the engine any more with the cabin battened down against a blizzard. The machinery cold soaks and caused a long delay in restarting when the weather cleared. Better than waking up dead, I guess. The party pushed on to the Point Geology Archipelago, where moonlight glittered over the sea ice and disappeared into the inky albedo of the Black Rock Islands. An apparent large and very flat rock turned out to be a rookery of sleeping emperor penguins, each bird resting their head on the shoulders of their neighbour. Michel Barr described this as reminiscent of a Roman legion employing a turtle defence. I didn't know Romans even cared about turtles. The field party stayed at Point Geology for a week, geologising and biologising and surveying during a seven day lull of no wind. Large quantities of light and fluffy snow fell though, and this stuck to the weasel's treadlinks, slowing their homeward progress as the tracks accumulated snowballing weight and friction, requiring regular clearing with picks and shovels. 
heavy fogs blocked the view forward, which made small distance gains difficult, and the view upward, which prevented astral navigation. Operating so close to the south magnetic pole made magnetic compasses into paperweights, and without the sun or the stars to guide their path, longer distance gains became impossible, forcing much sitting around awaiting a change in the local weather, with the added problems of keeping the weasel engines warm without killing everyone inside from exhaust gases. The sea ice ran to rotten on the erratic path they followed back to Port Martin, forcing much backtracking and several near-catastrophic dunkings direct into the sea. Drilling the ice to gauge depth became redundant when bamboo probes sufficed to break through the thinnest expanses they examined. Even more backtracking and much use of bridging timbers eventually saw the party reach home, but no one felt especially trusting of Adelie land sea ice margins after that. Around mid-winter, radio operator Claude Tisseron experienced crippling pain from a recurrence of bowel occlusion that initially laid him low immediately after the Commander Charco departed north. This time, the malady showed no sign of easing, and Dr Cedron began discussing a need to perform surgery with the patient and their leader. Tisseron didn't fancy being opened up on the dining table in their small quarters, and Bar, having recently lost a friend to surgical mishap, hoped for a reprieve in the form of a recession to the mean, but it never came. With surgery or death increasingly looking the only two options, Barr began preparing documentation offering Jean Cedron indemnity if Tisseron died after refusing the operation. This and the pain pushed the radio operator to accept the knife. Dr Cedron unpacked the anaesthetic array, surgical tools and sterile towels and drop sheets. A note left in the parcels by the medical staff who sterilised and packed the gear read, Don't panic. I've carried that advice with me since 1981 and it still serves me well. I'm pleased to learn that it predates my exposure to its simplicity and universality, though I notice there's no mention of always knowing where your towel is. I think I'm going to head around the corner to save my voice shouting into these waves. They didn't panic, though the first attempt to rectify Tisserand's problem gave them good reason for panic had they done so. Rateau managed the anaesthesia, Barr served as surgeon's assistant with Jean Bocquin in reserve in case the leader flaked out. Bertrand Imbert measured and recorded Tisserand's blood pressure and Mayeurde acted as nurse. Dr Cedron made an incision in Tisserand's belly and a length of intestine immediately sprang forth from the opening distended like an overinflated bicycle tyre in a tube. Tisserand's feet twitched and Cedron called for more gas. Rateau reported maximum flow, indicating a leak in the system. Besides not keeping the patient deep enough to not experience the operation, this placed all involved at risk of falling unconscious, or at least falling stupid, from the effects of the escaped anaesthetic agent. Cedron began an emergency closing but the intestinal balloon refused all attempts to return it inside the radio operator, even with four pairs of hands in play. Cedron popped it. The intestine deflated, but required careful cleaning and suturing to ensure its contents didn't cause immediate and catastrophic infection. With the lymph tube returned and the initial incision sewn up, the fraught medical team girded their loins for a second attempt the following day. Tisseron seemed more chipper having survived his first bout of surgery 
but everyone else counted the near miss as moving them closer to a fatality probability of one. Rateau identified the leak in the anaesthetic hosing, much as you would find a leak in a bicycle tyre in a tube, pushing it into a bucket of water and looking for the bubbles. If only intestines were so easy to assess. Rateau patched the hole and reassembled the machinery, ready for round two. This time, Dr. Cedron found a tumour as the root of Tisserand's problems, but the tools to hand didn't allow its removal. He improvised an artificial anus. Type those two words into a search engine, and once you wade through the returns promising speedy delivery of a latex object in a plain brown wrapper, you'll find articles about severe faecal incontinence and, if you're anything like me, you'll shut the tab quickly, your curiosity sated. The short version is, Tisserand wore a colostomy bag until surgeons in Lyon could rectify his occlusion and return his alimentary canal to full service. The tumour turned out benign, and he died 30 years later from an unrelated condition, so full marks to Dr Cedron for sterling performance under fraught conditions with minimal equipment and untrained supporting actors. The team abandoned a second attempt to reach the Emperor Penguin colony that spring, led by Bertrand Imbert, due to even worse sea ice conditions than the previous foray experienced on their return leg. Not long after, all the sea ice blew out to sea, this occurred after a sustained period of negative 30 degrees Celsius temperatures, further adding to French distrust of sea ice in the vicinity of Cape Marguerite. A penguin tagging scheme kicked off, using paint to give individual birds letters or numerals. Reverend Mayor's determination of the position of the South Magnetic Pole formed the third point in an arc approximating the magnetic field's path over the course of a century the other data arising from expeditions under James Clark Ross and Douglas Mawson. Aspirin. The buff-headed black dog the Brits threw in for good luck, escaped the dog lines one afternoon and killed a record 5,000 Adelie penguins at the nearby rookery. I guess the lucks the Brits spoke of belonged to penguins along the Antarctic Peninsula coasts, freed of Aspirin's ambitions by the FIDs sending him to Adelie land. The fourth French Antarctic voyage under Paul-Emile Victor's remit utilised the steel-hulled Norwegian sealing vessel, Totten, named after its owner. I can't find any note as to why the Commandant Charcot fell out of service, but the Totten is slated for further ice coffee attention in Australian and British service, so it must have proved itself iceworthy to some extent. Mario Marat returned south to lead the third French wintering team. Among the shore party, the Totten carried Jackie Dormel, Medico Dr. Rivolier, Engineer Vincent, Biologist Prevost, and Bob Dovers of Anari, serving as Australian observer and dog handler. The original plan for this voyage required a party of nine move into the quarters of Port Martin under Garcia, while Merritt headed up a quartet at Point Geology to spend a year observing the penguin rookery. Totten dropped the rookery team, some building supplies, stores and a weasel at Point Geology before moving on to the relief of Michel Barr's winterers. But shortly after arriving at Port Martin, the original plan went up in smoke when much of Port Martin went up in smoke. Fire started one night in the generator hut and spread toward the main building along the connecting corridor, a 50-knot blizzard fanning the flames through every existing gap and entering through new ones that the fire opened up. Barr, 
Dubois and Dovers controlled the spread with the combined effect of three fire extinguishers, but any time one ran out of suppressant, the flames gained ground. The narrow corridor prevented a counter-march volley fire approach, so fresh extinguishers were handed forward to the trio nearest the flames, but the wind entering into the situation more with each minute ensured they lost ground with each changeover. The fire reached a point in the corridor adjacent to the hydrogen cylinder storage, at which everyone headed outside to try to fight the flames through a hole packed in the roof. By then the floor of the main hut began smoking as the stores below caught light, and all effort switched from firefighting to salvage. Schwartz liberated the dogs and everyone else rescued the two previous year's data and some personal belongings before retiring to the emergency shelter to contemplate how the past half hour altered their entire future. They ran the three weasels up a rocky expanse, shot the two weakest dogs and loaded everything they could readily access back aboard the Toten. The ship sailed for Point Geology, anticipating extracting Marit's team. Marit decided to stay on inviting Dovers, Vincent and Georges Lepineau to join himself, Provost, Dr Rivolier and Duhamel. The small hut for the penguin biology team, still under construction on the Eels de Petrels, suddenly needed to house almost twice its intended contingent and the stores piles swelled under supplement from former Port Martin stocks. As noted on the previous visit, Point Geology exists in a still spot along the Antarctic coast. However much blizzard might rage all around it, the residents never experienced the tent-tearing winds racing past just outside their little eye of calm, which spanned a few square miles. Those not engaged in construction immediately turned to hunting seals to keep the dogs fed and to replace the food lost to the Port Martin fire. The dogs played havoc with the penguin research, killing birds any time the opportunity arose. Bob Dovers spent much of his winter improvising dog-proof tether lines and accommodations, but still the occasional escapee interfered with Provost's work. In one particularly bloody incident, one of the younger dogs, Maru, killed 150 penguins in a quarter hour, though still an amateur effort compared to Aspirin's spree. Skewers, never far from a penguin rookery, found the cache of dead seals. Firearms employed to try to diminish their menace to the winter food stock killed many birds, but many more turned up, drawn by the scent or by word of beak getting about. Bob Dovers tried a biological fix, leaving two dogs chained up within reach of the cache, figuring the dogs would eat less than the birds they might keep at bay. But the dogs gorged themselves into full-bellied sleep, and the birds ate around them. The completed hut, only 18 feet long and 12 feet wide, received its residents, who held a party. The menu, recorded in Bob Dover's memoirs, ran Pâté de Fargo, Thon Ahuel, Coca Vin, Folk Roti, Fruits Glacé, Fromages, Café Noir, Perno, Vin d'Alsace, Beaujolais. Inspired by the, by then, unaccustomed alcohol intake, the party members tackled the skewer problem with gelignite and gravel packed in a tin can and laid upon the seal cache. But the surviving birds didn't show any sudden disinclination to feast on the carcasses of the seals and of their exploded comrades. Marit decided to build a smaller six foot by six foot hut nearer the emperor penguins 
for the biologists to use for round-the-clock observations. This proved the most miserable accommodation, as its uninsulated walls only protected the occupants from the wind, and the combined condensation from breathing and cookery formed an ice rime on the ceiling that occasionally melted and rained down on bedding, clothing, books and meals without discrimination. Each visit by a relief team or a supply sledge brought what materials the Eels de Petrels camp could spare to try to make the Rookery residents' existence more comfortable. A tall order given the marginal state of what the original expedition plan designated an auxiliary base. The bird observers used red paint to mark the backs of that year's bird tag recipients and careful eyes watched for any sign of those birds marked the previous winter at Port Martin, though none ever showed up. Penguin meat supplemented the human pantry, but only when Provost's work required he kill an animal. Vincent worked to get the one weasel ready for a traverse over the sea ice to find where the Point Geology penguins went to reach water in which to hunt. With the learnt concerns about the local sea ice, one weasel with no backup was deemed safer than two dog teams because it might, all going well, cover 100 miles a day where the dogs could manage 30 miles at best. Less time on the sea ice outweighed the weight per unit surface area concerns and redundancy arguments that might have weighed in favour of dog sledging. Marit, Vincent and Provost headed north in the one precious machine one evening. Two days out and unable to find the penguin route to the sea, a blizzard pinned the weasel party down, 10 miles from the nearest coast. Heavy snow required they start the engine and drive clear of the drift growing around the vehicle and threatening to bury them. I hand over here to Bob Dovers from his memoir. Once out of the shelter of the hut, it was like trying to fight a palpable adversary to struggle against the buffeting wind and the sheeting snow. We could lean at an angle of 45 degrees to the ground, onto the wind, and yet still be blown off our feet backwards in the gusts. Visibility was nil. I could not see my own feet. After five yards, we could no longer see the hut. All we could see was swirling snow. We were guided by nothing more than the feel of the surface underfoot and the memory of the slope down to the bay as it was in fine weather. The ice forming on our faces and about our wrists and wherever it could find a chink in the armour of our windproofs hurt like a burn from an iron. We found and recognised the tide crack, where the floating bay ice meets the land ice, by falling into it. Having found this, we struck out in the direction of the tide gauge shelter, pacing out the distance as we went. The way the blizzard buffeted us made us suspect it had a personal enmity towards us. I felt like crying out to it to stop for just a moment, to give me a chance to readjust a snow-filled glove. At the estimated position of the tide gauge shelter, we stopped. I circled about, while Lepinu stood still to preserve a sense of direction. We had missed it. The only thing to do was return to the tide crack and strike out afresh. In a blizzard, one soon loses all sense of direction and, worse still, the ability to think logically. This second time, we lost count of our paces and it was only after what seemed an interminable period of groping and stumbling that we found ourselves floundering in the broken ice of a tide crack. Something was wrong. 
Perhaps we had turned in a half circle and we were back in the tide crack under the hut. Or perhaps we had struck the tide crack about one of the other islands in the bay. Communication by voice in this hostile wind was almost impossible. But we managed, by putting our ice-crusted faces together, to exchange ideas. We decided we must have blundered into the tide crack at Il Rostan, so turned and headed back in what we hoped was the direction of the hut. Having made this decision, the only thing to do was act upon it until it proved hopelessly wrong. All the same, it was an uncomfortable sensation, groping forward blindly in intense drift, battling against the cruel wind, trying to break the ice masks formed on our faces sufficiently to see a little in momentary easings of the sheeting snow, and wondering whether our slow, deliberate progress was taking us toward the warm hut, or northward into the unknown. Suddenly, about a yard in front of my nose, I thought I saw a dark object loom and disappear. I stopped a minute, trying to peer into the white murk to decide whether I had really seen something or not. Deciding it was just imagination, I took a step forward and collided with a hard vertical wall. Fumbling round it, I identified it as the wall of the elusive tide gauge. It was a very pleasant thing to feel the solid wood and to have this concrete evidence that we were no longer wandering lost about the bay. No word over the radio. The Quarter at Port Geology feared the worst but lacked any useful outlet for their concerns and carried on with data accumulation and household duties. Rivolier pulled a minor medical miracle out of the bag when three puppies, seeking shelter in the battery charging shed, experienced carbon monoxide poisoning. He injected them with strychnine as a heart stimulant, estimating the appropriate dose based on his knowledge of the extremely dangerous compounds use in humans, picking the narrow gap between effective and deadly. The three pups staggered around the hut, pouring at their aching heads as they recovered. The weasel party turned up two days after falling silent. Merritt and Co failed to find where the northbound penguins reached open water, but laid a fuel cache near the Endurance Glacier out to the west for an excursion later in the year. Merritt next planned a visit to Port Martin to collect whatever might be dug from the ruins to help the Point Geology party see out their winter. The three weasels mothballed on the rock expanse might, if they started, aid in further traverses. Short on fuel for their one weasel, named Hirondel, which means swallow, which still doesn't explain why you might name a two and a half ton tracked vehicle that, the team committed to sea ice travel once more, as reaching and traversing the plateau likely involved a lot of backtracking to avoid crevassed ground. With winter storms raftering the sea ice against the shore and grounded icebergs rocking on their keels, adding to the sea surface noise, Dovers and Vincent headed out with the dog team to scout the flattest path over the thickest ice. They headed into a maze of icebergs near the Piedmont of the Terranova Glacier and surprised themselves by finding a route, a tortuous one granted, clear of the pressure and offering a clear run to Port Martin, assuming the weasel fit through the narrowest gaps between the berg walls. Midwinter day passed while the party made ready for their excursion, and I quote Bob Dover's memoir wholesale once more. There was then a suggestion that the dogs must be having a dull midwinter's day, and that they should all be brought into the hut with us. I shuddered at the mental picture that presented. Twenty dogs would be brawling, 
eating, stealing and being sick in the narrow confines of the hut with wee men seeking refuge on the table. Fortunately, saner counsel prevailed, so the invitation was only extended to Patton and the three small pups. They, the pups, really enjoyed themselves, being stuffed with food scraps by everyone and squabbling under the table. They too had a wonderful night. A little later, a wandering emperor penguin was invited inside and joined us. He stood solemnly at the end of the table and viewed the proceedings with a disapproving eye. To cheer him up, he was offered a spoonful of brandy and two vitamin C pills. The effect of this was startling. The previously dignified and no doubt teetotal bird began to behave in a manner that left no doubt about his condition. A fighting drunk if ever I saw one. With raucous cries he chased the pups about the floor and when all pups were hiding, trembling with fear, he turned his aggression on the men. Very regretfully, we were obliged to show our new friend the door. Hirondelle headed into the winter dark with Marrot at the control levers, Dovers in the navigation trap, steering north by Jupiter on the horizon until the noon twilight offered enough light to find the previously mapped route and into the ice maze, and Duhamel bouncing about uncomfortably in the back. Vincent joined the weasel party when Fogg aborted an attempt to use the vehicle as a sea ice base for a dog sledge foray to find where the emperor penguins reached open water. Vincent and Provost drove their team through the ice maze but unable to navigate without a clear view of the sky, the intended penguin chase became impossible. Provost returned to base Marette, taking the recently killed seal. He returned five days later with additional fuel and food that the weasel party requested, having worked through their supplies while waiting for the sky to clear. Rafted ice slowed progress when they finally did start moving. One team member walked ahead probing the ice for tide cracks. Two more followed them, smoothing the path as much as pick and shovel allowed, and then the weasel pushed over their efforts in low gear. Another fuel penalty in an already tight situation. Here's Bob Dovers. It was a scene of desolation, with an aspect not of this planet, but rather of the face of the moon. As far as the eye could see under the weak light, there was a field of fantastic ice shapes, with the drift snow swirling eerily among the pinnacles of ice and dunes of snow beneath the cold light of the moon. There was but one form of life here. All else was dead and sterile. But that was as fantastic as its surroundings. The weasel, with its engine revving and roaring as it clambered clumsily among the storm-shattered flows. The weasel headlights were like two great eyes, one moment pointed at the ground and the next staring skywards. This was the earth at its inception at the beginning of time, with the weasel, some great prehistoric beast, stalking its prey by the full of the moon. They finally left the pressure ice behind, smooth surfaces as far as the eye might see, but then a blizzard pinned them for five days. A weasel isn't a big vehicle for four people to sit in, so four people trying to stretch out to sleep inside the confines left a lot to be desired, but sometimes comfort's relative. Compared to ablutions, sleeping was a doddle. Here's Bob Dovers. We were five weary and cheerless days there, waiting helplessly for the elements to calm. Five days camped on a yard-thick piece of ice with the thousand fathoms of cold dark water below it, and with many miles between us and solid land. 
five days in which from time to time each man was obliged to forsake the warmth of his sleeping bag and the shelter of the cabin, themselves no perfect comfort, and go out into the blizzard to answer the call of nature. This simple operation entailed a small expedition in itself, and was not one that was lightly undertaken. Though the unfortunate so pressed was the butt of shafts of humour from his companions, there was a sense of fellow sympathy behind their witticisms. He rugged himself up as completely as possible and tied down his gloves on his wrists before he dived out of the door. Once outside, he found himself alone in a shrieking, blinding nightmare of flying snow, unable to stand in that wind, obliged to crawl until he found a corner a little more sheltered than the rest. Only one who has sledged or travelled in midwinter in the Antarctic can appreciate the luxury and sheer beauty of a modern lavatory. The weather cleared and progress over the smoother ice sped up. Just for something different, here's Bob Dovers. The weasel underway under these conditions is like a ship at sea. The driver is crouched in the driving seat against the engine, peering through an iced and frosted windscreen. The navigator stands on the engine cover with his head and shoulders out through the navigation trap, watching the track ahead and periodically shouting changes of direction or warnings to the driver. Behind them in the cabin are the two passengers, curled up in as much comfort as the jolting vehicle allows, but ready to spring into action if needed. The navigator curses as he tries to turn the frozen setting screws of the astro compass with gloved hands and to pick up the pale disk of the moon through its frosted sights. At the same time, he shouts down instructions to the driver. Left, hard left, a little more, steady, on course, right, Hard right, hard right, as a wall of broken ice looms out of the gloom ahead. We were forging ahead at a steady seven miles an hour on what appeared to be a perfectly level sheet of ice, when suddenly a seal's head popped up dead ahead, almost under the machine in the headlights, peering at the weasel thundering at him. He gave a disgusted snort and disappeared. It happened so quickly that I might have imagined it, save for the cloud of his condensed breath that still hung in the air. Where a seal can come up, a weasel can easily go down. So there was an anxious moment or two after I screamed down, full speed, till the danger was past. We stopped the weasel and went back to investigate. A refrozen lead ran across the weasel track and where the track crossed it, there was a neat round hole in the new ice that the seal had chewed out and kept open by the same means ever since. We left the flag on a bamboo to mark the spot against our return. 75 nautical miles from the nearest land, and still unclear on where the Emperor Penguins reached open water. I give you Bob Dovers. To push our reconnaissance a few miles farther, a man went ahead on foot, whilst the other three cooked a meal. He carried an electric torch to light his way, and behind were the headlights of the weasel to guide him back. He left the pool of light in front of the weasel, and strode off into the icy darkness, in the vain hope that somewhere ahead, perhaps, were the tracks of Emperor Penguins. The sum total of absolute loneliness is one man, on foot, walking northward over the frozen sea in the middle of the Antarctic winter. Ahead of him are the trackless wastes of a frozen sea, leading out through shattered flows to the storm-lashed open ocean, whilst behind him is a vast, icy, unpeopled continent. His three companions in the weasel form his only link with the living world. As he walks slowly forward, stumbling over ridges of ice, he expects and finds nothing. After two miles with nothing found, he turns back. A momentary panic seizes him, 
as he finds he can no longer see the weasel headlights. Then he begins to walk slowly back, following the faint imprints of his feet on the surface of the snow, hoping that the falling snow will not hide them before he sees the weasel again. Two hours later he is back, and we four are grouped together at the weasel. We had pushed our search for the emperors as far as our resources could stand. Little petrol remained above the bare essential to take us on to Port Martin. We felt we could, with honour, turn our backs on the unsolved problem. Ever easier sea ice surfaces eased concerns about fuel, but the weather still tried to block their shot at goal. Would you like to hear Bob Dover's take on the matter? Here you go! The stars disappeared as the midday dawn lit the sky. At last ahead we saw a small, black island in the distance. This was Ile Verte, which lay only 13 miles north of Port Martin. Not so encouraging was a line of blizzards stretching like a wall behind Ile Verte. Somewhere behind that barrier of sheeting snow was Port Martin. Behind us in the northwest it was fine and clear. This was the line of demarcation between the Port Martin world and the world of the sea ice. Just on the fine weather side of that line, we could see Ile Verte. We entered the blizzard zone and tried to run down the direct course to Port Martin on dead reckoning. It was a queer sensation for me at the navigation trap, heading into the blizzard. I could not see the surface of the sea ice. All I could see was masses of snow swirling past at high speed. As a result, I had an impression of travelling at very high speed, and each time the weasel changed course, I found myself leaning against the turn, holding grimly to the superstructure, fearful that the weasel would roll over, turning at such apparent speed. It was only by looking at the weasel speedometer that I could convince myself that our speed was not the 100 miles an hour it seemed, but a modest 5. We retreated out of the blizzard. A little later, we tried again. We drove back into the driving, blinding snow. Marette was directing from the navigation trap. Suddenly, he screamed down to Vincent, who was driving, Top speed! Lead! The engine roared, the weasel surged ahead, but at the same time the stern slumped, the track scrambled, and then, with a lurch, we were once more on an even keel, driving ahead. We had run across a wide lead, unperceived in the dense drift, and only the speed of the weasel had jumped it across, breaking through as we went, but scrambling out on the other side among the shattered ice. This blind running was pushing our luck too far. We crawled out of the blizzard zone and sheltered at Ile Verte. Thirteen miles on, they reached the remains of Port Martin. The tired team broke a window to access the snow-filled refuge hut, shoveled it clear, lit the stove and made a brew, all with the beleaguered resolve of people determined not to have to sleep in a weasel again. The next morning, an examination of the mothballed weasels revealed them packed with dense snow, let in by any tiny hole exposed to the blasting winds the successive French expeditions came to associate with the site. The previous summer's sunlight imparted enough heat to the low albedo tracks to see them melt and refreeze into puddles of ice beneath them. Hard-packed snowdrifts ranged high up the vehicle's sides. Everyone helped dig one clear of its encasement and clear its innards, then Hirondel towed it to the nearer refuge hut to make it easier for Vincent to work on getting it working once more, which he immediately did, applying his skills with the bare hands and cold-soaked tools necessary for the precision nature of his task. Everyone else dug through the snowdrifts for food caches or buried auxiliary huts, gradually accumulating the stores and fuel necessary to make the remainder of their year at base merit 
more than a straight out repeat of the inexpressible island diet of seal blubber cooked on a seal blubber stove. Having spent their ice time among the relatively benign conditions prevailing at Eels de Petrels, Dovers and Duhamel received a thorough spanking from Port Martin. Here's Bob Dovers. Duhamel and I were working at the food dump, digging in the rock hard drift for buried cases. The wind was rising and the drift snow becoming thicker. I noticed that despite my heavy clothing and the hard physical work, I was getting colder. I redoubled my efforts in order to generate more body heat, but the cold was winning. I could not generate as much heat as I was losing. Besides, I was finding it difficult to see. A mask of ice had formed over my face and my eyelids kept freezing together. I felt it was time to find Duhamel three yards away and beat a retreat to the warmth of the tiny hut before we became helpless with ice and frostbite. I hesitated to do this, feeling that if he was still able to work, then I should be too. I met him floundering towards me, a dark shape in the sheeting whiteness. He was in a worse state than I. His face was a mask of ice with eyes blinded by his frozen eyelids. Not only was he blinded, but he had lost a glove trying to clear them and his hands were frostbitten. He was all but helpless and, if alone, would have been in considerable danger. He too, no doubt, had kept going, spurred by that same foolish pride in his own fitness that I had had. Clutching each other so as not to be separated by the buffeting of the wind, we stumbled our way back to the little hut, and though we were only 200 yards from it, we had difficulty in finding it. It was fortunate for both of us that my point of danger with exposure arrived a little later than his. As it was, it was our first lesson in the respect due to our new master, the blizzard. Vincent revived two of the mothballed weasels, these being named Cochinelle, either after the ladybird that translates to in English, or after the singer, actor and transgender icon and activist, just hitting her stride as a performer in Paris at the time. And Alfred, named after someone named Alfred. He was probably, in turn, named after someone else named Alfred. Sometimes, it's Alfred's all the way down. With ample fuel newly in hand, the party took turns turning over the weasel's engines every two hours in all weather to prevent further difficulty starting them when the time came to leave, which came as soon as they jacked up and stripped the remaining vehicle of all the spares their own weasels could tow, in addition to the sledges of newly acquired stores. A blizzard kept them on site and kept everyone busy digging out the sledges. To ensure a quick departure, they transferred their sleeping arrangements to Cochinelle and Hirondelle, everyone giving Alfred a swerve as a home due to a carbon monoxide problem that nearly claimed merit the previous day. They nailed the door of the refuge hut shut and awaited their chance to bolt from the Port Martin Ground Zero for blizzards. That opportunity came three days later. Exultant moods to leave Port Martin behind dissolved when it took three further days to regain Il Verde. Weasels broke through the sea ice surface regularly, though with three of the vehicles in play, extricating them proved easier than when Hirondelle travelled alone. While the team worked to free one vehicle with another, the Port Martin blizzard started up once more, slowly expanding its perimeter until it again swallowed the weasels and prevented further progress. The idea of a Port Martin ogre peeping over the horizon and sending its wrath in the form of wind and driving snow to thwart the ant-like monkeys dancing on its ground, took hold among the team. 
Its presence was felt particularly strongly by the unlucky punter driving Alfred, alone and slowly gassing themselves with its exhalations. Bob Dovers found himself missing his dogs. For all their viciousness toward one another and the local penguins, none sported a soul as malignant as Alfred in his eyes. Alfred's fuel pump gave out, forcing a stop and Vincent's careful ministrations to revive it. A red flag atop a bamboo stake marked their transition from the sea ice to the iceberg maze. A friend waving madly from the side of the road to show them the way home. That is, until radio contact with base Merritt informed the weary travellers that the berg passage closed up in their absence when the glacier moved in its sleep. The three weasels weaved into the ice maze, backtracked when fallen walls blocked progress, and camped through the darkest hours with ice walls towering overhead as a constant reminder of their precarious existence. A single berg keel melting a few millimetres might unleash untold millions of tonnes of solid water on their heads, pushing them through the scant sea ice holding them up and sending them unknown fathoms deep in the cold, dark waters below. Nerve shredding stuff to live with, moment to moment, for hours on end. Then a snowfall, concentrated in the troughs between the bergs, made forward progress with full sledge trains in train impossible. Nothing for it but relaying. Unladen weasels forged ahead a hundred yards, then returned to tow their loads over the newly flattened path. Dovers plied the snow ahead, digging through the snow and sounding the ice to determine the thickest, safest path, marking his findings with flag-topped bamboo markers red showing the road ahead, and black denoting the most dangerously thin patches. Who's using Eurocopters? I'll have to look that radio up when I get home. With four lives in his hands, every decision he made weighed on him. But he did what so few leaders in my life do, actually gripping the verb with both hands and leading, accepting each actual and metaphorical fork in the road as his responsibility and choosing as wisely as his experience and present conditions afforded. Everyone felt thoroughly wrung out when the three weasels formed up on Dovers, but the vista of an open path clear of the maze and promising eels de petrels just over the horizon gave the team the sort of boost usually associated with large doses of chemical stimulants taken directly into the bloodstream. Onward came the unanimous call. Dovers set his astro compass on the moon and the three vehicles headed off, and then they stopped because the headlights revealed the treacherous, paper-thin skein of ice topped with a camouflaging layer of snow atop a dark lead in a working crack. Every bridging timber and much plywood from the cabin innards went into as substantial a support frame as the team could manage. Marat drove across it in Hirondel, gunning the engine and almost leaping the machine clear of danger as wood slipped on wood, which in turn slipped on ice, which slipped on nothing but ocean beneath him. With two and a half tons of anchor on the far side, the drivers of the other machines crossed with greater confidence, 
but the bridge required rebuilding after each passage. All on the far side and off again, except the moon disappeared behind gathering clouds. Keeping their radio schedule with base Merritt, Bob Dovers arranged a beacon on the hilltop and the Merritt base crew fired very pistol flares into the night sky to light the way home. After a month of tribulations on the trail, the Weasel Quartet barely believed that other humans existed anywhere, let alone in the darkness ahead. But the Red Star Vary erupted skyward at the appointed time, and the trio of vehicles ran down the final 10 miles to the Eels de Petrels, towing five tons of stores on their sledge train, including, Marit noted with pride, the strain of the previous days evaporating, the entire cellar from Port Martin. The Home Fires trio welcomed the trail party with carbon monoxide free heat, a huge feed, and the hut transformed with paint, curtains across the bunk apertures, and a tiny bar in one corner, complete with zinc countertop, stool, and footrail. Telemore Francais. The next outing rised a trek with the two good weasels and a dog team, aiming to explore the western extent of the French claim to its furthest extent. Water sky on the horizon suggested large swathes of sea ice blew out in the weeks it took to recover from the Port Martin trip and to prepare stores for the new project, so Dovers and Rivolier took a dog team north to examine the state of what remained. They camped at Ile Fram, nine miles out from base Merritt, when the sea ice before them looked dodgy and the blizzard behind them offered no confidence they weren't about to head north on a rapid but short sea voyage. The weather showed some improvement and they abandoned this rock-based safety, breaking camp and heading out over the sea ice for two hours. The weather worsened and they turned back for Ile Fram, but after just half an hour working over their own tracks, the blizzard forced a halt. Re-erecting the tents in exactly the sort of ground they didn't want to spend a night, the pair kicked themselves, metaphorically, for pushing their luck in the name of progress. Keep in mind that we don't know the stories of people who pushed their luck and whose luck didn't hold. Often all we know about their fate comprises tracks leading to a broken ice edge, if that. Sometimes people did drift out to sea and a miserably hopeless death, and there's a number of such incidents in the ice coffee offing as Antarctica suddenly gets crowded with participants in the International Geophysical Year. Dover recounted the mix of fear and domestic ordinariness in his memoir. Dear warm, cosy little tent, with the ice rime half an inch thick on its inside walls. When lying in a sleeping bag inside, watching the ice crystals grow longer, it does not seem such a hospitable place. But when crawling in after a spell outside in the blizzard, it seems the acme of warmth and comfort. Rivolier regarded me with a dislike bordering on loathing. Before I went out, the tent was reasonably clear of snow, but after my exit and re-entering, a fine powder of drift snow had swirled in over everything. This was not the worst. Packed into my garments was a fair sample of what was blowing around outside. This had to be brushed off. The whole tent was disorganised for an hour. The feeling of virtue I had on entering, after braving the elements to feed man's best friends, faded rapidly under his icy frown of disapproval. To add to the enjoyment of the day, the washer on the filler cap of the Primus gave up the ghost. That showed us a minor refinement in the discomfort of camping in the cold that we had not yet experienced. 
the intense cold had changed the soft, oiled washer into a substance resembling brittle bakelite, which had cracked into fragments. We tried many substitutes, packing with fabric greased with butter, a piece of leather carved out of a boot, and a washer off a petrol flask, with about the same degree of success with each, so that for the rest of the trip, the lighting of the Primus was introduced by an overture of blasphemous comment by the man lighting it. That would not have been so bad, but it also developed an alarming habit of bursting into flames once lighted. As a flaming Primus is a source of considerable danger in the narrow confines of a tent, this meant that every time that we wished to use the Primus, we had to have the funnel of the tent open so that the Primus could be thrown out if the flames got out of control. All this made life a little less enjoyable than strictly necessary. It was during that first afternoon that we heard, even above the howl of the blizzard, a piercing cry. What the devil was that? I asked Revolier. Nothing, my dear Dovers, nothing at all. The cry of a seabird, without doubt an albatross, one of the birds of the wide open ocean, he replied. Which raises, however, an interesting academic question. Has the albatross flown in to see us, or have we made a voyage out to see the albatross? That night, we made radio contact with the base. Neither Rivolier or I were expert telegraphists. To us, the radio was a rather unnecessary encumbrance in the tent. Neither of us expected to get much in the way of results from it, and were rarely disappointed. When occasionally we established contact, we tended to regard the apparatus with disbelief, and to suspect a trick somewhere. We had difficulty in deciphering their signal. We finally decided that their message was, Where are you? That seemed to be the $64 question. We would have liked to know for sure ourselves. We debated several suitable replies, but finally replied with, We hope that we are still only four miles north of Ile Fram. We agreed that this was a remarkable piece of telegraphic abbreviation, condensing as it did in one short sentence all the hopes and fears that would be difficult to express in several paragraphs. They didn't drift out to sea, but the narrow margin was enough to give me the heebie-jeebies even as I wrote this episode in the relative warmth of the Port Phillip environs during a La Nina summer. The trail party returned to Eels de Petrels and Marrick began rethinking the western trek as a plateau operation with weasels and dogs. Marrick employed soldering iron and copper wire to devise a crackometer. Originally discussed on the Port Martin journey as a means to save Dover's having to dig so much in order to determine ice thickness, the gadget measured conductivity on a reasonable assumption that this variable increased as the probe tip neared seawater. Dubious but willing to do much to avoid digging more assay holes, Dover's joined Marrett on the nearby bay ice to test the device. It returned promising results and they happily spent the rest of the day calibrating it with ever increasing finesse. Dovers and Rivolier took it on a weasel foray to measure and map sea ice thickness for several days, adding a new tranche of data to the expedition and offering new insights into what extent they could afford to trust the remaining sea ice in different parts of their locale. Once more, they found themselves waiting out a blizzard, uncertain if they remained attached to the land. When the opportunity to head back arose, Hirondel refused to start. The least mechanically adept pair in that year's winter party tried and failed to troubleshoot the problem and shamefacedly called Base Merritt for assistance. 
Vincent and Marat duly arrived in Cochinelle, but even these mechanical savants didn't raise more than a choked gasp from the starter. Rivolier recalled placing potatoes in car exhausts as a child, and this prevented the car starting. Perhaps someone jammed a potato in their exhaust. Vincent investigated the hypothesis. He dismantled the exhaust system, but instead of pranks to potatoes, melted out a foot-long cylinder of compacted snow. The engine turned over easily and took to purring life after its removal. Previously planning to camp on what they considered a very safe stretch of sea ice, they returned to base Merritt when they noticed a distant sealing party working in the lee of a grounded iceberg. The sealing party hadn't noticed a blizzard building on the horizon. The weasel party drove over to the sealers and, having gone so far shoreward, continued on to spend the night in the comfort of the hut, Lepigneux helping them get the seals on the towed sledge, while Provost and Duhamel pushed their dogs to race the storm front home. The following day, as Rivolier and Dovers prepared to return to their work, Provost burst into the hut to announce open sea washing the shores of Eels de Petrels. The two sea ice researchers poured out large measures of cognac, drinking them in silent, melancholic reflection. Here's Dovers. Moret came into the hut shaking his head after inspecting the scene. If you had camped out there the other night, he said, what a terrible blow it would have been for us in the morning when we went out to look for your camp. Rivolier and I nodded assent, but we were thinking of two other persons who would be undergoing an even more marked shock about this time if we had not already begun to feed the euphausia on the ocean floor. We thought of those five seals who, by coming onto the ice at that critical moment, had saved us from a watery grave. You know, remarked Rivolier, whenever I go for a walk, I am going to carry a pocket full of sugar, just in case I meet a seal, so I can pat him on the head and offer him a lump of sugar, saying, and that is for you, my little seal, my very dear little seal. We amused ourselves that night, imagining the scene in the weasel had we made a forced camp with Lepigneux on the sea ice. Lepigneux, inexperienced in sea ice travel, would be the first to become alarmed, but the two experts would remain blasé about the whole thing, from their experience quite convinced that everything was as it should be. What was that noise? From Lepigneux. Nothing at all, happens every time, just the tracks contracting on the ice. A little later from Lepigneux. I don't like the way the weasel is rocking, it's almost as though we're afloat. Just the wind, it was much worse than this last time, from the experts. A little later from one of the experts. Funny, I don't feel well. Pemmican must have been bad. Funny, I feel just as though I'm seasick, from Lepigneux. I'm glad I'm with you two. I would be quite worried only for you. The seasick one suddenly makes a dive for the door, hand over mouth, and jumps out. Splash! The remaining expert's eyes widen with wild surmise and rest on Lepigneux, who has composed himself in the sleep of the innocent. So closes the tableau. The Western Party began their plateau trek on the 5th of November, following a route marked out to Camp 6, 20 miles away, with red flags atop bamboo markers laid by a scouting party operating out of Point Geology. Marat and Vincent drove the two weasels and Dovers and Rivolier, each drove a six-dog sledge team. The trail featured more crevasses than the reconnaissance party recognised, 
the Plateau Party finding the first one by almost losing a weasel and a team member down it. Marrett worked wonders with timbers and jacks to the point the other vehicle could pull the weasel clear of danger. From there on, someone walked ahead, tied to the first vehicle by an alpine rope and probing the ground. Here's Dovers. This is what the onlooker sees. On each side of the crevasse are bamboos marking its edges. It is quite easy with two edges marked to see the whole extent of the crevasse. The bridge looks most unstable and full of lethal menace. At each edge there is a weak section where the snow in the bridge has contracted and pulled away. The whole thing looks as though it only needs a touch to send it avalanching into the depths below. The driver engages his gears and approaches at exact right angles to the crevasse. The watchers hold their breath as the weasel dips down off the firm ice onto the bridge. One track breaks through the weak section of the edge, revealing a glimpse of dark blue nothingness below it. The engine revs and the tracks bite and the weasel crawls out and over the bridge with maddening slowness. It reaches the other side and the bow of the machine goes up as the tracks scramble on the far side. At last the weasel is on firm ice once more and another crevasse is passed. The man ahead goes on probing methodically with an ice axe for the next. It is very understandable that all breathed a sigh of relief when this zone of crevasses was at last left behind. Sastrugi also caused their share of trouble. Weasels shed tracks on the flanks of the smaller ones and capsized on larger ones they approached on anything shy of a critical failure angle, an angle impossible to gauge until the density and grade of the hillock became clear, and these factors only came clear to a weasel driver when driving their weasel over them. Astral navigation revealed their path across an idealised geoid surface, but in breaking new ground they couldn't know their destination. So knowing where they reached didn't tell them where to reach for next, leading to a sense of timeless and pointless effort on the wide expanse of the polar plateau, inland of the Terra Adelie coast. When they reached the coast in the vicinity of Glacier Z, sighted and named during Operation High Jump flights over the region, they found it eerily devoid of life but for two skewers, no doubt waiting for someone in the party to stop moving long enough to constitute a fee. Dovers found a seal mother and her month old pup and, alert to the food situation, shot and butchered them. Rivolier accused him of murder, calling him an assassin of babies, but this didn't prevent him in partaking of the seal veal served up in the tent that night. Marret stayed with the weasel, a leadership strategy I'll address in an episode dedicated to the topic, while Rivolier led Dovers and Vincent on to be on Nunatak Z with the dogs staying close to the coastal margin on the thin and untrustworthy sea ice, ready to bolt for a headland and continental safety at the first signs of offshore winds. The trio didn't realise how hard a path they picked, but where the terminus of Glacier Z met the sea, the sledging proved harder than at any previous point, with narrow, berg-lined alleyways cobbled with tilted flows of pressured sea ice, open leads, and every surface covered by fluffy, hard to wade through snow, the Maison route to Port Martin didn't compare. They never left this new and more bewildering glacial ground. Unable to make further progress with the sledges, unable to sight the sun due to blizzards on crook days and high berg walls during clear weather, Vincent made a rough calculation of their final camp as lying three nautical miles from the western limit of the French territorial claim. 
they skied on in the traditional lightly laden dash extension to ensure they came as close to the border of Wilkesland as time and stores allowed. Lightly laden sledges and rested dogs made for rapid progress back to Marat, who managed to set fire to and then extinguish the weasel in their absence, adding a bout of preserved food food poisoning to his stationary adventures. The Western Party built a can at the highest accessible point, sealing within it a note for future visitors to read and a flask of rum for future visitors to drink. The journey back to base Marat ran fast and loose. Previously hidden crevasses showed clear after recent snow melts and Marat only paused long enough to let passengers out before charging across the gaps in the lead vehicle. Two dogs allowed to run loose alongside the team disappeared without trace but otherwise, everyone returned to Eels de Petrels. The trip gave the weasels a caning, with half of the suspension mainsprings smashed beyond repair. But with no further forays planned before the return of the Totten, this didn't hold anyone's attention or warrant their industry. Orders came through from France to reduce the number of dogs returning north, and the old and useless, or in Aspirin's case both, dogs were earmarked for shooting. A last-minute reprieve saw all paws join the ship. George's Lepineau brought out a carefully hoarded trove of luxury foodstuffs for Christmas. A week later, the Totten appeared on the horizon. A motor launch brought to shore a year's worth of mail, and the seven residents spent a full day catching up on their correspondence, after which everyone worked fast to remove all valuable material, samples, data and equipment to the ship, and to mothball the station. The ship landed a weasel at Port Martin to carry Valette, a newly arrived gravimetrist, Pierre Stahl, inland for a gravimetric profile up to the plateau behind the burnt-out station. Duhamel crushed a finger in a slip on the ice while carrying a sledgehammer, the resulting medical attention cutting short a proposed survey visit to Cape Pippin aboard the ship. The Totten collected the gravimetry team Stopped the final time at Eels de Petrels to pick up Prevost and the dogs, then sailed for Australia. The dogs returned to France, most going on to pull sledges at Chamonix, though Aspirin moved in with the ship's pastry chef, which everyone thought fitting, especially Aspirin. Paul Emile Victor placed Andre Frank Leotard in charge of public relations for the Expeditions Polars Francaises commissioning films, books and pamphlets touting French polar efforts. In 1952, Paul-Emile Victor received the Patron's Gold Medal from the Royal Geographical Society for leading France forward with innovative polar projects. Georges Schwartz served as French observer and dog handler in the 1954 Anari expedition to Mawson Station on secondment from Port-à-Francaise in the Kerguelens. Jean Sapin Jaloustre published papers on the ecology of Adelie penguins. If any Australian cares to head to France to translate their Antarctic literature into English, he established a trust in memory of his wife, the daughter of a Hobart-based Francophile, promoting cross-cultural pollination between Australia and France. French speakers with an interesting project and an auspicing body can apply for funds to study or research in France. Candidates without existing experience in France are given preference. It seems a really nice memorial to his wife and a really good opportunity for Australian French language students. 
On the 6th of August 1955, the French government instituted the Terres Australis et Antarctiques Francaises, the French Southern and Antarctic Lands, which I'll refer to as the TAAF from here on out in the series. This established a territorial province incorporating Madagascar, the Crozets, the Kerguelens, Terra Adelie, New Amsterdam Island and St Paul Island. Madagascar began extricating itself from French oversight in 1958 and gained independence in 1960, but the French southern and Antarctic lands carried on overseeing the French presence in the islands and on the Antarctic continent. The burnt remains of Port Martin were incorporated as an Antarctic Special Preservation Area in 1985, becoming historical monument number 46 under the Antarctic Treaty System. Jésuit de Soleil. Take care and appreciate your coffee and whatever spatial reference system geodeticists offer you. And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham should be avoided. Mm -hmm.